the title of the message you can see there, Judgment Among the Brethren. Judgment Among the Brethren. The last couple of weeks, we have spoken about separation. And as we did so, we mentioned the fact that believers who desire to do what is right and who are reading the Word of God and earnestly following the Word of God have a natural tendency, it seems, to want to, as it were, perhaps we could say circle the wagons, to enfold into ourselves and just to kind of have a world inside of the world within which we live. Now, we talked last week about the fact that Paul warns us that this is dangerous, that this is wrong, that we do not want to be out of the world. We want to be in the world, just not of the world. It is unbiblical for us to seek to completely separate ourselves from the unbelieving world in interaction because when we separate our, our interaction, then we can't reach the world. We can't have that evangelistic Great Commission mindset that God has called us to have. The question I ask for you as we get started this morning is this. Why would we even be tempted to think that way? Why would we even be tempted to, to circle the wagons, to, to kind of enfold in ourselves? Why would we be tempted to even just separate and cut ourselves off entirely from the world around us? Think about that question for a moment. And as you think about that question, really the allure is like-mindedness, is it not? The fact that when you're out and you're amongst unbelievers and you're talking to people in the world, you can't relate to them very well, can you? Maybe you could get on a topic of relation. You could talk about sports or hunting or fishing or whatever. Something of a secular nature, but but there's a difference. There's something different that you just can't relate to them. Even when you think about the things that we would we would enjoy, things that we could perhaps relate to the world about, there's going to be a separation in philosophy as we approach those things. Talking with a guy about sports, well, perhaps to this man, this unbeliever, sports is his everything. He could list off every team that's won the World Series for the past hundred years. He, he knows statistics. He knows everything because he has poured his entire life into knowing these sports. And yeah, you know, you can enjoy the game, but of course, on Sunday you're in church and you have other priorities and you have a family and you are, are doing other things with your time than just reading about sports and hearing about sports. And so there's always this distance, this separation. When we come together as believers... There's just a different spirit. You don't have to worry that you're going to say something about God and someone's going to turn and just be like, oh, I don't believe that. I don't want to hear that anymore. There's a safety. There's a comfort in this group. And that's not a bad thing at all in its proper place. The problem is, though, we, we tend to turn everything kind of on its head in our ideas of separation when we approach separation, we have a tendency to avoid the world when we should be around the world and to go to the world when we ought to go to the church. So in chapter 5, we learned about separation, the necessity of separation, the limits of our separation, and we learned that we, though we need to be different from the world, distinct from the world, separate from the world, we still need to be going out into the world in order to reach the world. And it's our tendency to perhaps 
go the other way around and to want to stay in the world and not to reach the world, but just to kind of be happy with us. On the contrary, in chapter 6, we're going to learn about judgment among the brethren, the times when we need to keep things in the church. And as humans, it's going to be, just as it's our tendency to enfold as Christians instead of going out in the world, as humans, it will be our tendency to run to the world with some problems when they ought to be settled in the church. And so we're going to talk today about judgment among the brethren. And as we do so, I'd like us to remember our context. Context from chapter 5. First, we, we need to, to remember what he was saying. In chapter 5, verse 1, he said that there is fornication among you. And he said, and, not, and, uh, and such fornication as is not so much as named among the Gentiles, that one should have his father's wife. So he was speaking about a particular man in the church who was committing fornication, and the church knew of it, and the church was at least, at the very least, living with it. They were not mourning. They were not casting him out. Paul's exhortation was that you need to purge out this leaven. You need to cast this guy out of the church. He's living in open sin. You all know he's living in open sin. He needs to be cast out of the church with the intent, of course, as we know, of reconciliation, that he would repent of his sin and come back to the body of Christ. And then last week we talked about it. He said, For what have I to do to judge them that are without? Do not ye judge them that are within? And Paul established this reality that, in fact, we as believers have authority in the church context. That we have authority to judge the fruit of one's actions in this context. If a man says he's a believer and he's living in open, unrepentant sin, then it is within both the the authority and the responsibility of the church context to remove him before he begins to taint the rest of the body with sin. And we talked about that. Now, we're going to extend this concept as we get into chapter 6 just a little bit further. If you're there with me in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, look with me at verse 1. Paul asks, and he says this, Dare any of you, having a matter against another, go to law before the unjust and not before the saints? So he's asking a question here. And the situation seems to be as follows. Believers in the city of Corinth had come to some degree of contention, at least two believers, one with another over some matter. We don't know what the matter is. We don't know what the contention is. They began to feud over the matter in some shape or form. Neither one yielded. Each one was asserting that they were right and the other was wrong in the matter. And they did this to the extent that they were at an impasse. They, they could not settle this dispute between themselves. Well, they, they demanded satisfaction. One or the other demanded satisfaction. And so these people took this matter to the city's legal authorities to judge between them. And in doing so, they would have the weight of the law behind them. Whoever, of course, was judged for would have the weight of the law in order to get what he wanted out of that other brother. Sounds fairly normal, does it not? We've seen this before. Two men disagree, both refuse to yield, so they go to arbitration. They go to an objective third party to get this problem solved. And a lot of times they'll go to the law because they know that the law has a force behind it. And if a judgment is made by law, then the force of that judgment is going to compel the other person to do what 
you want them to do. And Paul's response to the situation is very pointed. He says, how dare you? Dare any of you? This word dare literally means to be bold or to be courageous or be daring. Do you really have so much boldness? Are you really that courageous that you would dare go to law? Bring this matter to the, uh, to, to an unjust, to an unbelieving judge instead of bringing it to the saints? How dare you is really what he is saying here. How dare you as believers go to the law against another believer before an unbelieving judge rather than before the brethren? And as we consider this this morning, there are three reasons that Paul presents as to why this is a major problem in the church. Now, we're only going to get to one of these reasons this morning. We'll talk about the first one this morning. This evening, we'll hit the last two. And so if you're not going to be able to be here this evening, I encourage you to listen to the second part of that message online as it will be online a little bit later this week at LegacyBaptistChurch.net. The three reasons, however, we'll, we'll cover in full. There's going to be a spiritual reason. There's going to be an evangelistic reason. And then there's going to be an obedience reason. And so we'll begin by understanding the context. We're going to understand these first few verses that Paul is saying. And then once we've understood what Paul is saying, then we'll seek to apply these truths to our lives. Paul says, dare any of you go to law against the unbeliever? Let me give you three reasons why you shouldn't. He said, let me give you a spiritual reason. Let me give you an evangelistic reason. And let me give you an obedience reason. Now, as we begin, let me say something just foundational. While it is God's ideal that matters would be solved among the brethren, as with any biblical ideal, it doesn't always work out that way. We as a church know well this week that biblical ideals don't always work out. That everything that we would desire to have, even among people that are right-meaning, isn't always going to happen because there's, there's another element here, isn't there? And that's the human element, the heart of a man. And that human element is always going to be there. And any time there is trust and love, there is also vulnerability. It's a part of the game. And see, that's why the love of God is so precious. Because God is faithful. Which means He won't fail us. Which means the ideal will always be found with God. But we can't always expect that among one another. Because we're human. And when humans deal with humans, there's an inevitable element of sin involved. Sin nature, the flesh, misunderstandings. We're not omniscient. We're not omnipresent. We can't know everything. We can't understand everything. And so whenever you're dealing with the human element, there's going to be less than ideal. We speak of avoiding the legal system among brethren today. We seek of avoiding the judgment of unbelievers today. And on principle or in principle, this command is absolute. But we recognize as well that we are called by God to submit to government and that our determination to avoid the legal system, both as citizens and as um, believers in Jesus Christ, would maintain, needs to maintain a careful compliance with the government in which we live. And what I'm saying is this. While I, without apology, preach a message encouraging believers to avoid placing themselves willingly under the judgment of unbelievers, I am not, under any circumstances, attempting to reflect a spirit of rebellion and disobedience against our 
civil government. There are laws by which we are governed. If someone chooses to take you to law, and by law you need to present yourself in court or face the consequences, then you need to know that you will either be in court or face the consequences. We are also among other commands in Scripture, such as the command not to submit ourselves to unbelievers in judgment, we are also called to submit ourselves to the law of man and to the civil government. And so we need to be careful to properly, biblically, prayerfully um, mesh those two in our minds so that we can do our best to adhere to the expectations of God as far as this command to not submit ourselves to ju the judgment of, of the unjust, but also recognize God's expectations upon us to obey civil government. So I'm not preaching a message of rebellion today, but I am going to preach a principle that you need to understand and that we ought to, as best we can, seek to live out in our lives. So let's talk about that first reason, the spiritual reason why we ought not go to law one with another. And this is found in verses 2 and 3. Paul says this, Do ye not know that the saints shall judge the world? And if the world shall be judged by you, are ye unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Know ye not that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? Paul uses two words in these verses that are both very exclusive to the church. He uses the word saints, at least in this age. He uses the word saints and he uses the word brethren. Both of these words speak of your interaction among those who profess faith in the Lord Jesus Christ by believing on His name. Now in the Old Testament, the Old Testament believers, uh, those who, who were saved by faith, were called saints and are called saints throughout the Scriptures. We know that the, in the, the, the seven years of tribulation, those are called the tribulation saints as well. So this word saints oftentimes goes beyond simply the context of the church. But in this age... You are God's saints, if you're a believer. You are the brethren. And so when we see this word brethren, or when we see this word saints in the New Testament, God is speaking about believers. And whoever's writing, the, the, the author is speaking to and about believers. And his first appeal is based very heavily upon the spiritual reality that we as believers will one day judge the world. That's what he says in verse 2. Do ye not know that saints shall judge the world? You know, many times in scriptures, particularly the Apostle Paul, appeals to the believer's future position with Christ to teach how we ought to live our lives today. In the book of Ephesians and Colossians, Paul teaches us that positionally we have an inheritance. We look for our redemption. We look for the adoption of sons. We are standing before God one day absolutely sinless and holy in God's eyes as we're clothed in Christ's righteousness. And Paul says in Galatians, and Paul says in Ephesians, and Paul says in Colossians, that because we will one day stand perfectly righteous and holy before God, we ought to live that way today. We aren't sinless today, are we? There's not a person in this room that is sinlessly perfect. But Paul says because you will one day stand before God sinlessly perfect, God actually looks down at you and He sees sinlessly perfect Christ in you. And so today, He calls you righteous 
because of what Christ did and what you will be one day. Today, He says you are saved because you will experience the full salvation that's coming to you one day. Today, God says you are adopted and calls you a son, even though the Scriptures tell us that we wait for our adoption. And our adoption is yet to come because it is so sure, it is so guaranteed that it's going to happen if you're a believer in this room, that you're as good as there today. And so Paul says, positionally you are these things. Let me give you an example, an illustration of this. A couple of years ago, I was called to be the pastor of Legacy Baptist Church. It's in 2011. And when I was called to be pastor of Legacy Baptist Church, it was in the summer while I was still finishing up my seminary degree. Now, when I received that letter, you were invited to be the pastor of Legacy Baptist Church, and, and the, I, I received the call, I received the invitation, I received the letter. I accepted that call, and I was the pastor of Legacy Baptist Church. Now, I had not taken up that position yet physically. I had not, I was not here, I was not preaching, I was not present. But when somebody came up to me at college and said, what are you doing after seminary? I'd say, oh, I'm, I'm going to be pastor at Legacy Baptist Church. When, when I filled out my form, my graduation form, I said, I am the pastor of Legacy Baptist Church because I was already accepted. If I, if I had called someone up here and I said, hi, it's me, they'd say, oh, hi, pastor, because I had been accepted as pastor of Legacy Baptist Church. I hadn't taken on every implication of being pastor yet, but I had been accepted as the pastor. That's the positional reality that we live in. We have not received all of the blessings of our salvation yet. But they are as good as ours. Because we serve a faithful God. And He's promised them to us. And so, positionally, Paul says, you are adopted. You have an inheritance. You are saved. And this is the same argument that Paul uses as he encourages the believers not to submit themselves to unbelievers in judgment. Unbelievers do not consider God's expectations when they judge. Unbelievers do not act upon the unchanging precepts of God's Word. Unbelievers have no ability to understand spiritual wisdom and so they cannot exercise spiritual discernment in their judgments. And if you will one day judge the world, if you will one day rule over a portion of this world, then do you not have everything necessary to judge one to another? Say, well, pastor, what's this you will judge the world stuff? Let's talk about this. Let's talk about the idea that we will one day judge the world, that we will one day judge angels. Paul says this in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. It is a faithful saying, for if we be dead with him, we shall also live with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we deny him, he will, he also will deny us. If we believe not, yet he abideth faithful, he cannot deny himself. As Paul is writing to Timothy here, he appeals to the reality that we will one day reign with Christ if we also suffer with Him. If we have humbled ourselves before God, have taken that cross upon ourselves, and have willingly walked this path of discipleship and are abiding in Christ, then the Scriptures have promised us that by virtue of our willingness to accept the Word of God and believe on His name, we have the privilege of ruling and reigning with Christ one day. 
This is the confidence that we have. And Paul's confidence in saying this to Timothy was actually rooted in the very teachings of Jesus Christ. Please turn with me to, cha- to Luke chapter 19. Luke 19. I'm going to read to you this parable. We'll begin in verse 12 and we'll read through verse 27 this morning. Jesus Christ speaking, it says, He said, therefore, a certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him, to whom he had given the money, that he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in a very little, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. He said unto him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept, laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up, that thou layest not down, and reapest, that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou knewest that I was an austere man, taking up, that I laid not down, and reaping, that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money to the bank? that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury. And he said unto them that stood by, Take from him the pound, and give it to him that hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds. For I say unto you that everyone that which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath, shall be taken away from him. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither, and slay them before me. Jesus taught a truth in this parable in Luke chapter 19. He describes a nobleman who had ten uh, servants and went into a far country to receive a kingdom. His command to them, as he gave them each a measure of responsibility, was to occupy until he returned. Well, when he returned, he brought his kingdom with him and he distributed to each servant according to their faithfulness to him. And according to the amount that they had been faithful to him in reaping from what he had given them, he allowed them to have a certain number of cities in his kingdom. To the degree to which they were faithful with God's gifts, they were rewarded with authority. Now the parable Jesus gives here and this teaching is the root of Paul's confidence that if we suffer with him, we will also reign with him. That the, the degree to which Christ has given us responsibility, as we take that responsibility and we use it properly, we will store up treasure in heaven. And then as we look at Revelation chapter 20, verse 6, we see this promise. As John sees the millennial kingdom, he says this, Blessed and holy is he that hath part in the first resurrection, on such the second death hath no power, that they shall be priests of God and of Christ, and shall reign with him a thousand years. Our understanding of eschatology, biblical, the, the study of last times, 
informs us that everyone, the Old Testament saints, New Testament believers, and tribulation saints will all be a part of the first resurrection. The second resurrection is known as the resurrection unto damnation or the resurrection of the unjust. If you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will not take part in the second resurrection. You will take part in the first resurrection. And if that is indeed the case, then this promise is to you. That if you take part in the first resurrection, then you will indeed reign with Christ for 1,000 years. And so Paul is speaking to the, the believers in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. He's saying the same thing that he said to Timothy, which is rooted in the confidence of what Jesus Christ taught in Luke 19. And the, the, the confidence is this, that you will one day reign with Christ. Which means Christ judges you as being capable because of the Holy Spirit inside you, because of the indwelling Spirit. He, he sees you as capable of judging in a way that an unbeliever cannot. He sees you capable of discernment that an unbeliever does not have. He sees you capable of a spiritual understanding that an unbeliever cannot have. And so we weigh our earthly interactions against the spiritual reality. As we apply this morning, this is, what I, this is how I'd like us to apply it this morning. What we need to do as we understand the spiritual response is we need to weigh our earthly interactions against the spiritual reality that we live in. You are indwelled with the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ. You live under the spiritual reality that you will one day rule and reign with Christ to the degree that you have been faithful to Him on this earth. And Paul says if that's true, and it is, then you need to live it today. And it should change the way we interact both with ourselves and with the unbelieving world around us. If we are to judge the world... If we are to rule and reign with Christ in the millennium, and we will judge those who have entered into the millennial kingdom without having died, we will judge those that are still on the earth, and we will be given cities, and we will be given regions that we will have the authority over, as the scriptures promise us we will, then do we not have enough judgment and authority and discernment to settle the differences one between another in this life? Can we not judge one between another without having to go to an unbeliever? And when we put this warning or this rebuke that Paul is really giving here together with what he's already said in chapter 1 and chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, this command not only becomes reasonable, but it becomes absolutely essential. It becomes the only thing that we could imagine being appropriate for fellow believers. And so let's take just a moment and let's remember what we've learned in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and chapter 2 about the believer and the unbeliever, about the mindset and about the abilities that each one has. Recall with me, we, we memorize this together. I know it's a little bit smaller. We memorize these verses and I'll read them for you. What we, what we saw when we were in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 26 through 29. Paul said this, For you see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not to bring to naught things that are, that no flesh should glory in His presence. 
So if we go before the learned judge or the learned counselor or the learned psychologist of this world, we are submitting ourselves to those that the scriptures call here the wise, the noble, and the mighty. And God says through Paul here in 1 Corinthians 1, has God not made their wisdom foolishness? Has God not made their might weakness? Has God not made their nobility as the base things of the world? And if that is true and that is the case, then what are we doing submitting ourselves to them in judgment? Recall what he said a little bit later in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 11-15. through 15. Paul asked this question. If you can't read it up there, I know it's small. It's in your Bibles. For what man, he asks, knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so, the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Which things also we speak, not in the words which man's wisdom teacheth, but which the Holy Ghost teacheth, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. But he that is spiritual judgeth all things, yet he himself is judged of no man. And so we need to weigh our earthly interactions one with another against the spiritual realities that we live in. The unbeliever doesn't understand spiritual things. And not only does he not understand spiritual things, he can't understand spiritual things. Paul's rebuke in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 is nothing more really than a natural extension of what he's been saying throughout the book. The Holy Spirit indwelled believer has a capacity to understand the world in a way which the unbeliever cannot. It's not that he will not, he cannot. We have the ability to see things not through the simple eyes of material advantage and disadvantage, not through simple worldly co- uh, wisdom collected through time and through philosophy and through study and through opinion, but through the broad lens of God's eternal plan for mankind, through the broad lens of God's plan for governments, for this world, and through the unchanging precepts of the Word of God. And when we're dealing with judgment among the brethren in physical matters, Should we not also consider what God thinks? Should it not matter to us God's plan, God's expectations, and God's desire? An unbelieving judge won't consider that. Paul says, so how dare you go before the unbeliever and not before the saints? The concept is this. The believer does not see different things than the unbeliever. But the believer does see things differently than the unbeliever. May I say that again? The believer does not see different things than the unbeliever, but the believer does see things differently than the unbeliever. And that is the concept that Paul is trying to get across here. It's not inherently our viewpoint on matters as it is the very foundation of the decisions that we make. It's not just... Even the decision we make, it's the reason for the decisions that we make. See, there are plenty of unbelievers who think the same way we do on various matters. We as believers believe that children need to be disciplined, do we not? Children ought to be disciplined. Now, the world around us doesn't really believe that, but there are plenty of unbelievers that still believe children ought to be disciplined. So, 
what's the difference between the unbeliever that believes a child must be disciplined and the believer who thinks a child must be disciplined? Well, here's the difference. The unbeliever looks at child discipline and sees the need to bring about good behavior in children and believes that discipline is the best way to bring about that good behavior. The believer sees things a little differently. The believer sees discipline as an opportunity to teach children how to obey their parents so that they can learn how to obey so that they can learn how to obey God when God begins convicting their heart of sin. So for us as parents, discipline on this earthly level is an opportunity for us to instill something in our children that will then allow them to respond properly to God when God asks them to obey. They have a track record of knowing how to obey because they've been obeying their parents. And so perhaps they will obey God easier the first time. There are plenty of unbelievers who believe abortion is wrong, aren't there? There's a lot of unbelievers who say, yeah, abortion is wrong. But they don't have the reasons we do. While an unbeliever looks at abortion and he sees an act of irresponsibility, an act of neglect, an act of abuse, perhaps he would even call it murder. The unbeliever doesn't see the reality that when you kill a person, whether it be an unborn child, or whether it be an elderly person, or anyone in between, you are killing someone that has the image of God in, uh, in them. You are destroying that sacred life that God has placed a sacredness to. The unbeliever doesn't see that. They see murder and they see how bad that is on society and those sorts of things. They don't understand how sacred human life is to God. There are plenty of unbelievers who think adultery is wrong, aren't there? There are plenty of unbelievers who think adultery is wrong, but they don't think adultery is wrong for the same reasons we do where an unbeliever looks at adultery and he sees it as breaking a civil union, bad for society, family's important, these sorts of things, we see adultery as the destruction of the very picture of Christ and His church that God has placed into the, the, the marriage relationship. And so when adultery occurs, it is not just you spurning your spouse, or you hurting society, you are literally marring the picture of God that is to be a testimony to the world. The unbeliever would never see that. And so there are plenty of unbelievers who might come to equitable legal decisions. There are plenty of unbelievers who might come to uh, the same thought processes that we might, maybe not so much in this age as much as the ages prior. You know, there was an age where the unbeliever and the believer had a very similar mindset in this country. Not, not anymore. But for all that, it's still true that the unbeliever is not capable of considering the spiritual necessities of forgiveness, of reconciliation, and of unity that are essential to the testimony of the church in this age and to the function of the church in this age. And this is why it matters so much. It doesn't matter so much because we see things differently than the unbeliever because we don't always. But it does matter because we, uh, excuse me, because we see different things. Because we don't always see different things. But we ought to always see things differently. We ought to always be compelled by an understanding of God that is completely foreign to the unbeliever. And it must be foreign because they do not have the Spirit of God indwelling them. And so it's not just about what we do, it's about why we do it. 
It's not just about the outcome of a decision. It's about careful adherence to biblical truth. I alluded to it already. You know, 70 years ago, cultural convictions looked very similar to Christian convictions, didn't they? Prayer in school, Bible reading. I was talking to a a couple this week, and they were talking about when they were children in school, things still pretty well revolved around the Bible. You know, there was a lot of, there was Bible studies, there was one day a week where you could go to a church for training, Uh, there was prayer in schools, these sorts of things. Culture believed that abortion was wrong, culture believed adultery to be wrong, culture believed in child discipline, all those things we talked about. Culture was, by and large, in line with Scripture as far as outcome is concerned. But while culture's convictions were similar to Christian convictions, they were driven by other motives. They weren't driven by spiritual motives. They were driven by maybe moral motives or traditional motives or prosperity motives, but not by the motives which we have. And by the way, our motive is this right here. And so, because they were driven by different motives, under the proper conditions, their convictions could change. Right? And so, psychologists began telling culture that child discipline hurts their self-esteem. And because culture's convictions were not rooted on anything established or firm or unchanging, they were rooted on philosophy and, and tradition and this is the way we've done it. When science began telling people that discipline hurts a child's self-esteem, culture changed. Culture changed to meet the expectations of society. And so scientists began to tell people that we're not really made in the image of God, that God didn't even make us, that we are a product of of evolution. And if we're just a product of evolution, then what's the difference between killing your annoying cat or killing your annoying neighbor, right? If, If we're just a more evolved animal than a cat, if we just made it onto the next step of the, of the evolutionary chain, then what does it matter whether I love my neighbor or kill my neighbor? It's, it's survival of the fittest, right? And so when, when society's understandings changed, their convictions changed. And so abortion is legal. We can kill babies if they're inconvenient. Inconvenient cat? Cat's bugging me? That bird is is bugging me, it's waking me up in the morning, that squirrel keeps getting on the bird feeder, I'm going to shoot that squirrel. That's the bird's food, that's not the squirrel's food, I'm going to shoot that squirrel. Well, that child, I've still got to go to college, I'm not married, and I've got a child on the way, that's an inconvenient child. Let's just get rid of that one. How's it different from shooting a squirrel that's being inconvenient? This is the end result of society and culture. See, Culture was never Christian. It just shared Christian convictions. And when culture and society changed, their convictions changed. And this is why we must be deeper. We must be more foundational. It's not just about what we do. It's why we do it. It's not just about the outcome of a decision. It's about adherence to biblical truth. It's about our foundation. When one's convictions are based upon subjective beliefs and man's traditions, those convictions are changeable. They will alter with the winds of culture. They'll alter with the winds of social acceptance. The believer, on the contrary, rests his convictions upon the unchanging precepts of God's holy word. 
So where society says things are changing, the believer says with King Solomon, there's nothing new under the sun. Nothing's changed. Where society says changes in times call for changes in conviction, the believer says we ought to obey God rather than man. And our convictions do not change. And so a society ebbs and flows based upon the whims of whoever is most convincing in the arguments in their respective fields of application. God's church stands upon the solid foundation of God and His Word as taught by the apostles and the prophets with Jesus Christ Himself as the chief cornerstone. That's the difference. And so how dare we Submit ourselves to the judgment of unbelievers. And notice that this principle goes far beyond the courts. Let me bring up a couple of other things here. What about secular mental health counseling? Or secular marriage counseling? Certainly, where there is trouble between two believers, it should be expected that they take their problems to the spiritual wisdom and judgment of God's people prior to taking the problem to the secular wisdom and judgment of civil law. If your brother in Christ were to offend you in some way wherein you would be right to take him to law, you ought not to take him to law, you ought to take him to the brethren instead. But then, the principle extends beyond that, doesn't it? How can we as believers send ourselves or our children to secular mental health counseling when we know that there must be a spiritual element to their problem? There must be. There must be. There's no, there's no part of this world that doesn't have a spiritual element to it. And those secular mental health counselors are going to completely ignore that. They're going to pretend like it doesn't exist and they're going to try to dull the spiritual element through various means pills or through exercises or through some other secular solution to a spiritual problem. Same thing with marriage counseling. You're having a problem with your spouse. Do you really think that you're going to find the answer to that problem outside of God's Word? It's not going to happen. So why would we submit ourselves to someone who has a bunch of letters in front of their name and degrees on their walls, but is willing to chop off the entire spiritual element of the conversation and throw it out the window? We can't do it. We mustn't do it. When we understand what's going on in modern psychology, what's going on in modern counseling, we must understand that the, that secular Psychology and secular counseling teaches a completely godless worldview that sees people as nothing more than animals to be uh, manipulated by stimulus and response. You ring a bell and the dog drools. Pavlov's dogs, right? That's That's what everyone believes humans are. If I can manipulate you in just the right way, then you'll do what you're supposed to do and everything will be okay. But it's not that way. We know that. We know that there's a spiritual element missing. We mustn't submit ourselves to those who don't see the spiritual element. We hear the explanations of secular experts regarding school shootings. There's another one just the other day at Arapahoe High School in Colorado, about five minutes from where my, my sister lives. She called me and was talking to me about it. And they're going to be talking for the next several weeks, year anniversary of the Newtown shootings, brand new shooting here, about all of the problems and the reasons why our children are, children are doing this. 
violent video games, those sorts of things. They may even mention music. They may mention the great mental stress that our children are under right now, uh, all of the expectations placed upon them academically, family life, these sorts of things. And they're hitting all the symptoms. But, you know, if you take the spiritual aspect out of all of that, out of the music they're listening to, if you take out the spiritual element of the wicked music that they're listening to, or you take the spiritual element out of the... Wick, the, the wicked, violent video games that they're playing, or you take the spiritual element out of the difficulties in their family life, or you take the spiritual element out of these things, then you're going to miss the boat every time. They're going to miss the boat every time because they're missing the most important piece of the puzzle. Do you know that the entire purpose of modern psychology and counseling today is to dull the conscience of man? God has given man a conscience. And when that conscience begins to be pricked heavily, there are, there are actually physical ramifications of a guilty conscience. And what psychologists and psychiatrists and counselors are trying to do today is say, the problem is you just don't love yourself enough. You just need to develop a positive self-image and a positive love. Do you know what they're saying? You see that you're a sinner. You see that you are not worthy. You see that you are a bad person. We need to try to get to convince you that you're a good person when actually you're not. If we can get you to convince yourself that you're a good person, to get you self-esteem, to get you to love yourself, even though you are dead in your trespasses and sins and you've offended a holy God, then we can get you to dull your conscience so much that you can ignore it and all of these, these psychological problems will go away. That's what they're trying to do. They're trying to dull the conscience of man. That is crying out that we are offending a holy God. And that there are physical manifestations of offending a holy God as our conscience is seared and our conscience is offended. We mustn't, we mustn't go to secular people for wisdom in regard to Life. We must go to those who have the Holy Spirit indwelling, who understand the spiritual element. Now, I caution you, just because a person says they're saved, or even just because a person is a believer, this does not mean that they're a good counselor. This does not mean that they, they can inherently judge rightly. We still need to be careful who we place ourselves under for this judgment. But, Paul will we'll go on to say, and we'll talk about this, Notice verse 4. If then ye have judgment of the things pertaining to this life, set them to judge who are least esteemed in the church. Literally, those that are most set aside in the church. I speak this to your shame. Is it so that there is not a wise man among you? No, not one that shall be able to judge between his brethren. Even the least esteemed man who has a proper relationship with God and a proper understanding of the Word of God is better than the man with all the letters in front of his name and the diplomas on his wall who is going to just completely ignore the spiritual element of your situation. And so we weigh our earthly interactions against spiritual realities. If you are a born-again believer under my voice today, then by virtue of the Holy Spirit indwelling, you individually have the capacity to understand the spiritual realities of human nature, and of biblical expectation 
God's expectations upon you in a way that the unbeliever has absolutely no capacity to do. It's not only that he does not understand, it's that he cannot understand those things that are spiritually discerned. When we willingly place ourselves under the judgment or under the counsel of unbelievers, we are purposefully yielding any proper spiritual consideration in the matter at hand. We are yielding spiritual wisdom. We are yielding spiritual determinations. We are therefore yielding a spiritual outcome. May I say that again? We yield spiritual wisdom. We yield spiritual determinations. And so by default, we are yielding, giving up a spiritual outcome. You will not find a proper spiritual outcome when you bring problems to unbelievers to solve. Because they cannot solve the problem spiritually. The solution that Paul gives is to place ourselves under the judgment and the counsel of fellow believers in order that the guidance that we, would, we, we receive would be filled with the spiritual wisdom that is imparted only to those that have the Holy Spirit in dwelling. Now this evening we'll look at two other points. We will look at the spiritual testimony that we need to have around unbelievers and we'll look at the spiritual expectation that God has placed upon us. Now, I've given you a, a part, but, but this is indeed a two-part message. I've perhaps even wrapped this one up pretty well. But you are going to miss, particularly that third point is vital. You are going to miss a vital point if you don't hear the second half of this or if you don't understand it from the Scriptures. So may I encourage you, if you can't make it back this evening, get it online. Listen to it online. If you have no means by which to listen to it online, come see Pastor Wickler. I'll burn you a CD and I'll get it to you because the second half of this message is indeed essential. And you need to hear it this evening or um, you need to hear it at some point. Let's pray together.